You're listening to episode 44. This is Grace on Fire. Join your virtual pastor as he offers insight and inspiration into topics we all face. Be empowered. Gain confidence with God's grace so you can face life's most challenging problems. When you integrate faith in every aspect of your life, you can live an extraordinary one for a higher purpose. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan G. Smith. And hello, Grace Nation, and welcome to the show. My name is the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, your virtual pastor, and my goal is to help you craft your life for a higher purpose. Let me ask you a question today on the show. Have you ever been stuck in a rut? Sure, we all have. I mean, we all have been stuck in a rut, and if you don't know what a a rut is because you're from somewhere up north in the city or you grew up in South Florida and you've never driven on a dirt road before, let me tell you what a rut is. A rut usually happens on a dirt road that's been traveled, you know, hundreds of times. And what ends up happening is, is that the tires in your car can't actually get out of the rut. You can actually let go of the steering wheel of your car. And because of the deep grooves that are in the street, you just keep going forward. You don't stop. You can't go right. You can't go left unless you intentionally turn your wheel extremely hard and you exert some 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 type of effort into your car to get out of the rut. And unfortunately, that, uh, as an analogy, actually happens in our own lives. So we have ruts in our lives that we can't get out of. And the question is, is what do you do? And and how do you get out of that? Well, on today's show, we're going to be talking about uh, this question. How do we quit things that aren't working? I mean, how do you, how do you even know how do you do it? I mean, what what does it look like? And and what are some of the the implications for our lives in order to try to move forward? Because part of crafting your life for a higher purpose means that they're going to have to there, there's going to have to be some things that just come to an end. I mean, there just has to be. You can either continue to do this or stop doing this. You can either continue to move forward in your rut heading towards nowhere or you're going to make a change. And just like I said in my analogy today, that when you make a change, it's going to require some kind of effort. Now, if you think about a rut, just going back to a moment uh, for my uh, car illustration, if you just think about that example, what what happens in order to, you, you know, if you don't change anything, you will eventually run out of gas and you're just going to stop. And I have actually seen that in people's lives, you know, particularly as a pastor, I've seen this where, you know, people just, uh, they just run out of gas. I mean, they just stop. I mean, they just boom, done. They don't actually make any changes, but they just stop. I mean, they're not moving forward. They're not moving backwards. They're just stopped. I mean, for whatever reason, something has happened in their lives where they're not moving forward in life. Have you ever been there? I mean, you may be there right now. You may be listening to this and you're saying, you know, I am there. Let me just tell you something. I know exactly what that feels like. That happened to me about a year ago and um, made some changes. I've talked about those changes. I'm not going to go into it today, but um, I had to I had to break free. And let me just tell you, it, t- it takes energy. I mean, it just takes work and it's uncomfortable and, it, and it's sometimes really painful. But as we are going to see today, there's so much fruit that can come out of, you know, quitting things 
that simply aren't working. So we're going to be talking about that today. Also, we're going to talk a little street theology. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about who God is as it relates to change. I have a good tip of the week for you, and then we're going to get right into our feature presentation on the show topic here, how to quit things that aren't working. So, you know, grab yourself a drink, a sip of coffee, or plug yourself in onto the into the car as you're getting ready to cruise, because today is the day where we begin to make some changes in our lives. All right, let's go. Connecting deep truth for everyday life. This is Theology on the Street. And I'm, uh, we're going to connect some deep theology here for everyday life. And the question is, is change and who God is? You know, whenever we begin talking about change of any kind, it doesn't matter what it is, but whenever we begin to talk about change, you know, one of the first things we actually have to address is what is actually changing, Right. What is actually changing? And in almost every case, usually what has to change is some kind and some variety of relationship. And so why not take a moment to kind of think about the ultimate relationship between you and God, right? Because if we're going to be effective change makers, if we're going to be effective in trying to get what out of whatever get out of whatever rut you're in and to move into a positive direction. Now by the way, let me just say this right up front. When I'm talking about changes, I'm talking about changes that will result in growth and have a positive end. All right? I'm not talking about change just for change's sake. I'm talking about change that's going to result in growth and have some kind of positive outcome. And sometimes change in growth and positive outcome is also very painful. Uh, having gone through a number, a number, a number, a number of painful changes in my life, I can tell you that while going through those changes, um, I, you know, I was just looking at God like, <laughs> "Hello, are you even up there?" So here's my favorite story. So a number of years ago, when I lost my job at my dream job, when I lost my dream job, okay, who loses their dream job? By the way, I got fired from my dream job. I mean, I, I don't know. That I, I think sometimes that's an all-time low. But anyways. You know, now I'm doing my dream business, which is talking to you on a podcast, talking about how I lost my dream job, right? So, improvement. But I remember just, um, <laughs> so I'm sitting in South Florida, right? And we had this huge oak tree in the back of our house where we lived. And um, everybody's at work except for me, right? Because I lost my job and had my job. And this is about two or three weeks in. And in order to cope with the problem, I, you know, I started, you know, smoking cigars. Yes, I know. Listen. Tobacco is, is absolutely gross, disgusting, horrible habit. It results in all kinds of problems, but I love it so much. There's nothing better. But anyways, I love, uh, I don't smoke today because my daughter flipped out and, you know, my daughter's a fundamentalist. And so I said, hey, okay, honey, I'm not going to do that. I respect for her. But one day when I'm old, one day when I'm old, you may just see me lighten up a, a stogie. But anyways, so I'm sitting out there. And I'm just like, I'm talking to God like, <laughs> I, I remember just, I'll never forget because there was a little squirrel there and the squirrel's just eating nuts looking at me and I'm nuts. I'm feeling nuts at that point. And I'm just talking to God, God, what in the world just happened? How is it that you could remove me from that situation, which was a bad situation, but at the time I didn't realize that. And I said, you know, how could you remove me from that? And honestly, what it was about for me at that point was... God's faithfulness, you know, was God faithful? 
because he put me into a really uncomfortable situation. I mean, I'm just going to say this. I got to confess this. You know, and, I, and I've heard this several other times. And so I just want to go ahead and own this. For men, I think when they lose their job, um, well, for whatever reason, when they lose their job, it's a crushing defeat. It is a crushing, crushing defeat. It, it, it destroys their self-confidence. It destroys their pride. It, it really, when you lose your job like that, it, it just, it's humiliating. And honestly, at the time, I didn't feel humiliated, but I really was humiliated. I was just in utter shock. I went from a super busy life to literally sitting in the backyard looking at a squirrel who's eating nuts and asking God if I had gone nuts. And honestly, I felt like I had gone nuts. And and that's that's what happened. So in times of change, whether good or bad, whether it's intentional or unintentional, in times of change, one of the most important things that we have to do is we have to ask God and we have to understand who God is because that's going to have this ripple effect on how we approach life in every other aspect, especially, I think, when it comes to a point when we are doing intentional changes. And so what I want to do is just get to the very character of God and, and begin to think through that logically, all right? So who is our exemplar of God? And that is Jesus. That's the person of Jesus. And that is, is that when we get into and look at the life of Jesus, Jesus throughout his teachings, I mean, the things that Jesus said, if if you don't understand what Jesus is saying, it's because you don't understand who God is. And so let's look at who God is and kind of get a really broad macro view over of God. Now, I said a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about, you know, God is our Abba Daddy. And I told you how, you know, I struggle with that Abba Daddy reference. And what I said was, is that I struggled with the daddy part. And what I said was also was that I began to see my own earthly father as an exemplar of my heavenly father through the lens of loyalty, because my father, my dad, my earthly dad, he's a loyal guy. And I love him for that. I think it's incredible. The one thing that he is, I mean, he's been married to my mother. God bless him. I mean, I think for almost 60 years, I, I think they're getting close to that 60-year mark. I know it's been 50 years. Um, but they, they're, they've been doing this thing for a long time. So um, not quite yet, but I'm pretty sure they're getting close to it. So anyways, he, though, I mean, through thick and thin, I mean, till death do their part, they have been together and they have demonstrated this loyalty. And that's the idea here that I want to pick up. So Jesus, he's asked by these Pharisees, and, you know, what is the greatest commandment? Now, why would they ask that question? Now, I just want to, like, pause for a moment and think about that. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees, who had just been ripping on Jesus for the entire Jesus ministry, they were obviously church people, and they... You know, they're ripping on Jesus, trying to catch him. They, they've thrown all kinds of obstacles at him, thrown all kinds of questions at him. And so they ask Jesus, and they're like, okay, Jesus, all right, all right, we got all these rules, 613 rules. What is the greatest commandment, uh, Rabbi? And Jesus, I mean, he doesn't hesitate. He just comes right back firing at him. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 9, 8, 19, 18. Now, this is really critical, okay? He quotes from Deuteronomy Six five, and then Leviticus nineteen eighteen. Now, the reason why that's so important, and the way he answers this question, is because he puts together two different verses that are miles apart from each other. Okay, so here is here is Deuteronomy six five. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's that's Deuteronomy 6.5. Now, we're familiar with that, right? And then he goes on there, okay? And he says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them di- diligently to your children. All right. So he goes on. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, and he just quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. Now, if you go back and read Deuteronomy, all chapter 6, I'm not going to do it on the show here, but if you go through and read that, he doesn't talk about loving your neighbor at all. And then, all of the sudden, out of the blue, and then he goes, and the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you're like, whoa, wait a minute, Jesus, hey, what? I mean, he takes a clause that's sort of buried in Leviticus, and he pulls that clause out, and he says, yeah, and this is the second greatest commandment. So what Jesus actually does is he redefines the law. Now, why? That's the question I'm trying to drive at us today, okay? Why? Why is this the greatest commandment? And what we're going to find here in this today is because it actually reflects God's nature. Are you ready for this? So, all right, so whatever you're doing right now, if you're driving, don't stop. But if you're just listening and you're sort of doing other things, all right, I want you to pay attention to this piece. Are you ready? Here it is. The reason why that we love God with all our heart and with all our soul and the reason why we love our neighbors as ourselves is because what we will be doing is demonstrating God's loyal love back to him. All right? Everything is rooted in God's loyalty. It's his nature to be loyal. It is in our nature to be unloyal or disloyal. Are you following me on this? And what I want to do today is I want to spend the remaining time of this street theology to kind of talk and parse out the difference between two ideas. The difference is between covenant and contract, okay? Covenant and contract. So what do I want to do here is to understand God's love through the lens of biblical idea of a covenant, all right? And the reason is you're going to you just follow the logic here, okay? Because we're, we're really going through some logic. So here it is. A contract, we know what a contract is. We have contracts for everything today. We even have prenuptial agreements that are contracts before you actually get in and make your covenant oath, all right? Which for me, okay, I get that, but my goodness gracious, that is, that is, I don't even want to go there. Okay, so a contract is benefit-driven. You will do this for me, and I will do this for you, and this benefit will occur. In North America today, we, we fully understand the idea of contract, and we will spell out all of the different things of a contract, all right? We have no problems with contract. In fact, unfortunately, what I think is that our concept of love has now moved from the covenant model to a contractual model so that we even go to churches with a contractual mindset. So long as you provide this religious good and service and this youth program, I will be in your church. However, if if you no longer provide these services or this program or this Sunday school, I will leave your church. That's the, that's contract. That's contractual thinking. In North America, unfortunately, even Christians, we have lost the idea of contractual uh, or the covenantal relationship. So that actually begs the question then, well, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is different because it's relationally driven and it's measured ultimately by loyalty. Now, Elmer A. Martins 
in his book, God Designs, A Focus on Old Testament Theology, he wrote this. And by the way, don't go, don't go read the book. I'm just giving you the title there, you know, for your own benefit. This is not my idea, it's Elmer's. So Elmer here says this, of all the differences between covenant and contract, the place in covenant of personal loyalty is most striking. In other words, a covenant is based upon two parties in a relationship with one another, and it has to do with personal loyalty. It has it has very little to do with benefits. You have, generally speaking, one who has a greater gifting and lesser gifting, and they enter into a covenant relationship for the benefit of each other and because of the relationship and not necessarily from the benefit that's derived from it. Are you following me? Very difficult to understand, but this is biblical thinking now. In other words, you're engaging into a relationship vis-a-vis a covenant because of the relationship, and it doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the benefits that are derived from it. Now, there are benefits into it, but they're not nearly as important, all right? Because in a covenant relationship, what can actually happen is that you may have one party who benefits more, all right? Sometimes in marriage, marriage is supposed to be a covenant um, relationship. Sometimes in marriage, you have spouses that are sick and the other spouse is having to take care of that sick partner. And so the benefits are lopsided, all right? And you just, you live with it. I, I, I understand that. Sometimes my wife has been sick and vice versa. When I've been sick, you know, my, my spouse, my wife, she's had to kind of take care of it. But it's not a contract. I don't go to her and say, hey, now look here, uh, lady, you're supposed to be doing this, this, and this. That, I think, is part of the problem with a lot of marriages is they get into a contractual inequities and saying, well, I'm doing all this work and I'm doing all this and da-da-da-da-da-da, and you don't do anything you get for nothing, blah, da, 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 da. That's contractual thinking. It's contractual thinking. Now, obviously, when there are inequities and balances in the relationship, you want to work it out. But that's not what we're talking about here because ultimately we're talking about our relationship with God, all right? And we're trying to understand God. So God relates to us covenantally. All right? He, he relates to us covenantally. And how does he do it? And that's, that's really, you know, the bombing question here. Because what you find in the Bible over and over again, particularly in the Old Testament, is the idea of hesed. All right? And hesed, whenever you find this Hebrew word, it's usually in the, in the ESV, which stands for the English Standard Version, it's always translated steadfast love. All right, but the idea is a little bit broader than that, and it, it in in Hesed doesn't have a one for one English equivalent. It, it's a it's a deeper idea, but the general idea is showing loving kindness. And then the second word that you usually find uh, associated with Hesed is the Hebrew word emit, and that is demonstrating faithfulness. And usually, what you find is those two ideas put together where God is showing his hesed and his emmet, his showing us loving kindness and demonstrating faithfulness, all right? And so what Old Testament theologians will say is that a covenantal relationship with God in the Old Testament, the obligation is always on the stronger party to help the weaker party. 
And in our relationship with God, in other words, if the if of a covenant is always the stronger party helping the weaker party, if that's really what an old covenant is, or excuse me, a covenantal relationship with God is, what you find is that our relationship with God, he is always the stronger party. Okay? God is always the stronger party. And he's entering into a covenantal relationship with us and his very nature is to be loyal to us, and he is driven by his nature to show hesed and emit, to show steadfast love, or loving kindness, or loyalty, or faithfulness, or friendship. So here's the bottom line. Whenever you face any kind of uncertainty in your life, no matter what it is, no matter what you're facing, everything that you're going through, whatever that uncertainty is, what you can do is ultimately base your confidence not on anything else but in God because of God's nature is faithfulness and kindness to you. And that takes us all the way back then to the great commandment. The reason why that Jesus says to love your Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, that this is the greatest commandment, it's because that God has loved us. And what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to say, listen, put all of your loyalty, all of your faith, everything, all of your identity into God because he is your covenantal partner so that when you're facing change or uncertainties in your life, whenever things are going awry, whenever your kids are driving you crazy or the financial market's going to hack or your church people are driving you nuts or you know your son or daughter have gone wacko or their identities are messed up, whatever's going on, if you try to find and put your confidence in anything else, you're missing the most important thing, which is the steadfastness and the faithfulness of God. It's built on this covenantal relationship because God is the bigger, stronger party. And going back to that point in my life where I was looking at that squirrel and I was thinking about that squirrel, you know, I remember just crying out to God, just thinking, God, you know, where are you? And God's like, I'm right here. Just wait. And it was a time in my life of pruning. It was a time in my life where some necessary things had to happen. But thank God he did it because he demonstrated to me his faithfulness and his steadfast love in my life. And now for Smitty's Life Hack Tip of the Week. And that brings me to my tip of the week. And one of the things that you have to understand is the idea of setting boundaries, all right? And so this is just a quick tip for you this week. Look at your relationships that are just driving you crazy, all right? And understand this, that every relationship has to have some kind of boundaries. And uh, I think that sometimes what happens is, is that we don't know how to set boundaries in our lives. And so <laughs> I'll never forget this. Um, there's a, a young lady that was getting married and she had a situation come up. So she called me up. She said, you're my pastor. I need some advice. I'm like, sure, I'm happy to give you some advice. So here's the advice. And the situation, she said, um, I, I want to get married. And uh, my in-laws next door neighbors are mad because they didn't get an invitation. And I was like, okay. So I asked her, I said, okay, so the situation is, is that your in-laws, not who are not getting married, you're getting married, your in-laws are having a problem with their neighbors. I said, do you know their neighbors? 
And she was like, no. I said, do you have a relationship? I said, does your husband have a, like a really close relationship? Was there some reason? And she's like, no. I said, okay, so it's just some a set of neighbors who, for whatever reason, are upset. She goes, yeah. And I said, you know what? She goes, what do I do? I said, nothing. It's not your responsibility. One of the things that I think that I see over and over again is that as human beings, we have difficulties in setting boundaries and identifying responsibility. And so we take these things on us and then those things actually, those things actually work against us where we're not setting, you know, the appropriate boundaries. And so I think that it's important to understand that as you go through life, setting boundaries and not taking responsibility of things that are outside of your control, all right, those are critical ideas. So hope that helps in whatever situation that you find yourself in this week. And now it's time for our feature presentation. Oh, and we're talking about the question of the day, how to quit things that aren't working. Woo! And I'm going to tell you something right now. That is a difficult, if not impossible, thing to do for so many people. I mean, honestly, it's been hard for me to do quit some things that haven't been working. And, and you know, and I don't know why. I think part of it's just comfort, comfortability. You know, we get into bad situations and we know they're bad. I mean, we know they're bad. You know they're bad. You're, you're in a situation right now. You're in a relationship right now. And it's bad. And you don't know what to do about it. And you just keep going back to it. And you keep going to it over and over and over again. And you know in your mind, this isn't working. This isn't working. This isn't working. And you kept, you keep doing it. It's the definition of insanity. Keep, you keep doing the same thing, expecting different results. And let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, if I can help you, listen to your pastor today. If the definition of insanity is at work in your life, then stop the insanity because the Lord ain't blessing. All right, let me get back to you for a moment, okay? Think about that for just a moment, all right? You know it's not working. You know the relationship's just gone terrible, all right? And we're not just talking about lovey-dovey single people. We're talking about business partnerships. We're talking about ministry relationships. I mean, we're talking about all kinds of things that require change, and it's not working, and we're afraid to pull the trigger. And I think ultimately... As I was talking about our street theology segment just a little while ago, you know, that we ultimately were afraid to change things because change is hard, change is uncomfortable, and sometimes, unfortunately, you know, it, res- it, it comes at a price. And so what I want to do today is kind of talk to you about a resource that I think may be the best book I have ever read on the need for change. And this was written by a book called Henry, uh, or written by, written by a book. It was written by a guy by the name of Dr. Henry Cloud. He was a, a clinical psychologist, a very successful businessman, very successful psychologist. He's a subject expert in uh, all kinds of, of issues. And the thing about, I, I, I love Henry Cloud. I think the guy is amazing. I actually heard Henry Cloud speak at... Um, a recovery, a celebrate recovery uh, meeting that I attended a couple of years ago. Yeah, I love recovery, by the way. We'll talk about that another time. But anyways, he was speaking on a latest book that he came out, which um, you know, it, 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 which was called "Don't Go Back" or something like that. Never go back. Never go back. That was the name of the book. And he had ten things that you never go back to. And honestly, that's a good book too. But Henry wrote a book called "Necessary Endings," and I downloaded the audio book. And I'm just telling you right now. 
that what Henry's book did for me was it liberated my mind. It liberated my mind from bad thinking, from really bad thinking. So what I want to do today is I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about necessary endings, and I want to highlight a couple of things out of this. And what I really want you to do is go buy his book, because I think that it will benefit you in so many ways. And by the way, he, he's really good at the uh, audiobook version, so if you like to listen to me, and you're like, hey, okay, I don't have time to read, go get the Audible subscription, download the app, put it on your iPhone or your, or your, your Kindle or whatever, and listen to him. Just listen. It, it's worth the investment of time to just kind of get into it. Even if life's cruising right now, there's going to be some times in your life where things are going to come up. And you're like, okay, what do I do? And his book will help. So let's get into this today. Uh, I've already talked to you about, um, you know, why I'm, I'm pushing this book. But let's just get into a definition of what a necessary ending is. What his definition of necessary end is bringing changes in relationships, activities, and strategies for a positive benefit. Think about that now. Bringing changes in relationship, activities, and strategies for a positive benefit. Now, we're not talking about doing harm here. This is where the Christian principle of, you know, love your neighbor as yourself kicks in. We're not talking about, you know, some kind of crack, uh, uh, crap, I was going to say crap, contractual um thing what we're talking about is how do we create a mutually positive benefit for two parties all right it can be between you and your boss it could be between you and your kids honestly it can be like that um, but the idea here is that you have these three categories of relationship activities and strategies and so if you look at these three categories relationship activity and strategies you know his definition of a positive benefit makes sense okay so in relationships both parties can benefit Activities, you know, you're looking at your processes and behaviors of things that you're, you know, that may or may not be working. Sometimes, you know, you just have things that don't work any longer. It worked for a while, but things need to change. Those activities need to change. And then strategies, you know, this is where the reasons why behind the things that you do, you know, your why will change. Sometimes you'll lose sight of the why. This is why we're doing it. Well, this is why you did it in 1950. Is this why you should be doing it in 2017? Yeah, think about that. You know, some liturgies that were written were written in 1600, and some of and they're good for theological purposes. But I wouldn't want to sit there and use some of the old language. Some liturgies that are used today that people say are the most important liturgies in the whole world were written in 1979. That's almost you know I don't know. Do the math there. 40 years ago. Is that really something that we should be doing today? Change is a difficult thing to go through. So what do you do? Well, Henry introduces, or Dr. Cloud, we should call him Dr. Cloud. Dr. Cloud says that one of the things that you have to do is introduce the idea of pruning. Now, pruning is a natural part of anything, any kind of organization, including ministries. But, you know, Henry, he talks about pruning with rose, look at a rose bush. Now, I'm not a rosarian. I don't have a green thumb. I have a brown thumb. I know how to kill things with poison. And I also now know how to let weeds grow in Florida. Because in Florida, everything grows. Uh, but if you allow things just to grow wildly, you're going to have a huge mess on it. So when I bought my house, all right, I had literally a pool deck that was covered in seven to eight inches of sediment and decay 
and whatever you call that stuff when leaves break down compost because the previous owners had let the, the their backyard just grow wild and had actually overgrown the pool deck. And so I cut down all these trees. I cut down like 30 trees, dug out my pool deck, discovered I had a huge, far bigger pool deck than I originally even imagined, which was awesome. And, um, but I realized that that's the effect. When you don't prune things, things grow wild and out of control. And then you got a huge mess in your hands. And then it takes a lot of work to fix that out. This can be true in your eating. It can be true in your disciplines of your life. It can be true in your business. Your business can be incredibly successful. And all of a sudden, it's just growing out of control. How do you prune things? So getting back to the idea of a rose, what Dr. Cloud talks about is he says, when you have a rose, you are intentionally cutting out parts so that the, that the life and the force can be forced into one single rose. In other words, if you really want a beautiful rose, you cut back all the other areas that are not necessarily producing that vivid, beautiful bud that you're hoping for so that the energy of the rose can be channeled into that one bud. Now think about that for a moment. What things in your life have come in that are taking away from your energy? They're good, but they may not be critical that are taking away from that bud. I, I sit on boards of different ministries and I realized that oftentimes those ministries can take energy away from my primary uh, job which is to be a pastor and to be your pastor your virtual pastor remember I'm your virtual pastor anyways and you know that time away also takes time away from my family takes time away from other things and so I have to make changes but changes are hard right so you have to look at this, not just from the idea of just changing critical areas, but you also need to change areas that may not be critical or are not as critical as some other areas. So broad definition of pruning here, and I think it's helpful because, again, we should all be looking at this and all reading this and saying, man, this is incredible. Okay, so what happens when we fail to prune? Well, we talked about this already a little bit, but listen to what Dr. Cloud says, he says this, when we fail to end things well, we are destined to repeat the mistakes that keep us from moving on. Endings are a part of every aspect of life. When done well, the seasons of life are negotiated and the proper endings lead to the end of pain, greater growth, personal or ministry goals reached and a better life. Ending brings hope. However, when done poorly, Bad outcomes happen, good opportunities are lost, and misery either remains or is repeated. Okay, so he introduces a couple of ideas here that I think are important. Number one, what he talks about, first of all, is this idea of seasons. You know that we all have different seasons in our lives. Right now, I'm in the season of young children, and those young children take a lot of my time, and I can't do all the things that I really want to do. You know, I'm just dying to write a couple of books on some of my ideas around sexual identity. I really want to do that, but I can't. I just don't have the time to do it. It would be great if I could, but I don't. Um, so the seasons in our lives are important, but endings are part of those negotiations. And so go read the book because he really uh, expounds on it because we don't have that time, much time to do it today in this show. But he also brings this other idea. He says that, you know, when you do things bad, all right, that sometimes, you know, bad outcomes can happen. So you can't end things poorly because it will happen. 
If your organization fails to recognize the season that it's in, if it's in an organizational decline, things aren't working out well, income is down, and you just continue to go down, eventually it's going to end, but it may end everybody. And then the opportunities are lost as well. And, you know, he talks about this idea of misery remaining, or you're just repeating mistakes from the past. Endings are important. And I love what Henry's doing. He says, when you fail to prune these things, what actually ends up happening is, is that you can't, you, you can't put your energy, you're putting your energy everywhere, so you can't actually funnel your energy into that rosebud that is whatever is important in your life. You know, it could be your kids, it could be your job, it could be a combination of things. But remember, we're talking about a, a crafting a life of a higher purpose. So when you identify what that higher purpose is, then you can begin to align your life according to that purpose. What you will actually discover is a life of greater purpose and happiness. And that's what we're looking for, happiness. All right, so how does you do this, all right? So the question is, what should we prune? Well, he goes on to say on page 30 this. He says, sometimes people equate the concept of pruning with cutting expenses or reducing headcount. But cutting cost is not what pruning is about. And it's when someone says that they are thinking, when someone says that, they're actually thinking more like a manager than a leader. All right. So we're talking actually about leadership now because it takes a little bit, it takes a broader perspective to say, okay, what are we going to cut in order to lead to growth? And it's not just about trimming expenses. Whenever you enter into a time where you say, we just need to cut the expenses. Well, why? Why are you doing that? What is it? Because when you cut expenses out of something, when you, when you purposely defund something, you are actually taking life out of whatever that is. So you got to be really careful. I got to tell you this as a personal story. Uh, I made this mistake in my ministry where I actually cut funding of a certain thing. And the result was I got poor performance. Now, I probably could have told you that. But you know what? There's an old Cuban saying this. He says, in order to make the donkey work, you got to feed the donkey. And it's true. You got to feed the donkey if you want it to work. Uh, my good friend, George Finley, uh, who's a, a pastor down in Miami, pointed that out to me. Anyways, so what is the kind of pruning that he's talking about? Well, Henry goes on and he says this. It's the kind of pruning that he's talking about. It has to do with focus, mission, purpose, structure, and strategic ex execution. Let me read that list again to you. Focus mission, purpose, structure, and strategic execution. Did you hear money in that anywhere? You understand this, that the more or the better that you, or the better able that you are to focus on what you're doing, get clear about your mission, identify your purpose, figure out what structures that you need that will support those things, and then execute it when you get those kind of clear clarity in those areas then you can actually identify the areas that are not lining up with that pruning and and that's that's critical here because then you can begin to get an idea of how to move forward we're facing this at redeemer right now and the big question that we're asking ourselves at redeemer is this we're saying what isn't what is it what is it what is it to be an anglican you know is it this is it this is it this is it this and so the reason why we're doing that is because we want to get clarity on our mission. We want to get clarity on our, our purpose. We need to get clarity on how to structure around those things in order that we can start making better decisions that we can execute. And so this is why that you have to prune certain things, because if you don't do it, you're going to end up like my 
backyard that was overgrown. So what he talks about this, he goes on to say this. He says, so what we're talking about here is not just cutting fat, as the phrase goes, but we're talking about defining what the bush is going to look like and pruning everything that is keeping it from realizing that vision, be it good, bad, or dead. Again, let me read that to you again. We are talking about defining what the bush is going to look like and pruning everything that is keeping it from realizing that vision. Now, what does that require? It ultimately requires that you have to have a clear vision in mind of what it is that you're trying to accomplish. You need to get a clear vision of that higher purpose in your life. Now, ultimately, I believe that that clear purpose begins with a clear understanding of who God is. Once you understand who God is, that God is faithful and loyal and kind and loving, and he's going to be there for you no matter how many times you mess up, all right? When you understand that that idea, you are now liberated and free from having to get into the sort of works thing of oh, I don't do this right, and then this is going to happen. You can actually move from being you can actually move from being worried about how things are going to respond to then moving into an experimental phase. Now, catch this, all right? This is what's so fun about this, because then you can say, okay, Lord, well let's try this. Well, that didn't work. Okay, Lord, well why don't we try this? Well, well, Lord, you know you're faithful. Help me out, and you know, and then you just begin to kind of play with this. Why? Because God is always there. He's always there for you. And that's why I think it's so critical. This doesn't work, by the way. This does not work in any other theological system because any other theological system that does not embrace the loyalty and faithfulness of God, he's never going to leave you or abandon you. He's going to be there to take care of you. All right. Then you be you get stuck back into this, well, you know, God didn't bless that because this blew up. It's, it doesn't work that way, all right? You're getting back into that contractual mindset. No, covenantal relationship says God's there for you. Hey, this thing may not work, but that's okay because all that's happening is the market's responding. God doesn't guarantee everything's going to work. He just guarantees he's going to be there. Sometimes we want the other thing. Sometimes we want the contractual quid, you know, quid pro quo, as they say in the old business world. But anyways, you got to have this clear idea of what it looks like so that you can then begin to cut all right, so let's kind of break this down into some simple ideas. So let's just say you're in this bad relationship, all right? You're in a bad job, and your boss is driving you crazy. And, you know, you're trying, your boss comes to you and says, hey, I want this done. And then you do the work, and then he doesn't like it, and you're discouraged, okay? And then you come back, and you say, okay, well, I'm going to try it again, and it doesn't happen, all right? And so you kind of go through this this uh, process repeatedly where you keep trying to produce something and no matter what you produce, your boss isn't going to be happy. What's the problem? Well, ultimately, I think the problem is that there's a communication breakdown between you and your boss and then you start to internalize it. And then you start thinking poorly about yourself or poorly about your skills and you know, and then you get stuck in this rut. What are you gonna do? Well, you're gonna have to make some changes here. All right, because there's a problem with the vision. There's a problem with what's going on inside that person. I, you know, there are just bosses in this world. There are people in this world that you will never make happy because they're ultimately unhappy people. It's not your job to make them happy. And I think that, you know, you can look at that in a number of dysfunctional relationships, whether it be at business 
or churches or family members, community, whatever, sometimes things simply don't work out. And that's because there's competing visions going on of what it's supposed to look like. And so you got to nail that down, I think. And I think that um, it's clear. Now, what's really good about cloud here is that what Dr. Cloud does is he gives a lot of good positive examples of where a business is actually working well and you know why in the world would you change it but the leader can look and forecast down the road and says if we continue to do this we're going to be obsolete in 10 years or 15 years and then begins to strategically make changes and then he also talks about how difficult those changes can be particularly in an org in an organization that has a long history of establishment things of doing certain processes and ways of doing things i mean it's fascinating to listen to him so that's why i say you could go read the book because i don't have time to uh, evaluate all of those things or to kind of elucidate all of them but what i gotta tell you is this honestly it, it, we're not just talking about things that are bad sometimes things are good that are really good and you're still forced to have to make those changes. You know, and if you actually stop and think about it for just a moment, when things are good and you try to make changes because you think it'd be better, that's when you really need to have a strong theology of God's goodness, right? Because it could totally blow up on you. And, um, and then you got a real mess on your hands. So, you know, a couple of just helpful things there is that, you know, you've got to prune. You've got to quit these things. And then there is a second component, actually a third component here, okay? Here's a third component of this, all right? So let me kind of review them up to this point. First of all, you have to embrace the idea of necessary endings. That is, you've got to come to the grips with it that in every time in our lives that there's a time and a season for necessary endings. That is, you have to bring changes in relationships and activities and strategies for some kind of positive benefit benefit. Number two, you have to prune. There are just things in your life that in order to grow, in order to move forward, in order to craft that higher purpose, there are going to be some things that you're going to have to prune out of your life in order to grow. Now, number three, we get into this idea between hoping and wishing. All right. So you can embrace the idea that you need to make a change. You can even embrace the idea that you now need to prune some things out and you can even go so far as to identify what they are. Then you get to that point where now you have to distinguish between hoping and wishing. Right. Hope. He, he writes this and I think it's important. He says this. He says hope is one of the most powerful forces in the universe with hope. We can endure almost anything and certainly more than if we lose it or don't have it to begin with. All right. Now think about that. Hope. All right. Hope is this idea that it's going to work. So if you're a church planter and you're in a church plant, you have to cling to the idea of hope that someday the church is going to be big enough to take roots and to grow deep and to establish itself. Hope is what drives the whole thing. If you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to start a business and you've got this business idea, hope is what causes you to get up because you can visualize this thing, this business, this activity that you're in and get through the processes and get through what Michael Hyatt calls the messy middle because it's hope that's going to cause you 
to get through those difficult times in order to achieve your dream of getting that business off the ground. That's why I think Cloud is saying that hope is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. He goes on to say, in short, hope keeps us going. And that is the problem. Oh, man, I love it when he says this, okay? Hope is the problem. Why? Because what if your hope is based on something that's false? Think about it. He says this, hope buys time and spends it. Whoo! When I read those words, when I when I actually, when I heard those words and then I went back and read the book, all right, <laughs> this was great. This is what he says. Hope buys time and spends it. Hope buys time and spends it. Hope is designed to give us more time so that whatever we are hoping for can come to pass. All right? Well, think about that for a moment. How long have you stayed in a bad situation because of hope? Because you hoped that it would change. That's the time that hope buys. And it also spends it. He goes on to say, however, it sometimes creates problems if we're not in touch with reality. In that case, it is hope that keeps us going down a road that has no realistic change of being the right road or making what we want to come to pass. Let's get all the way back down to the roots or to the ruts again. All right, from the south, from the roots. If you're on a rut in your life and you're hoping that it's going to change and you think it'll change and you so you just keep going, that's what it's talking about because we're not in touch with reality. We're not realizing the effort it's going to take to make the change in order to come to that reality. And so you may be out of touch with reality. You may not even see this. And I actually see this a lot with people where I see that they want, you know, in, in small churches, they really want a big church. They really, really want these things. But what they don't see is the is the a rut that they're in. And because they've lost touch with reality, they've really lost touch with the marketplace. They've really lost touch with people. And so they keep saying they're hoping and they're just hoping. So he goes on cloud picking up on this problem. He makes a distinction, I think, between hoping and wishing. And I love the way that he does this, because what I think happens is, is that sometimes we just wish things would be better. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're confusing that with false hope. And in other words, a wish is false hope. And this is what he says. He says, false hope buys us more time to spend on something that is not going to work. And it keeps us from seeing the reality that is at once our biggest problem and our greatest opportunity. It is our biggest problem not seeing the reality that needs to be dealt with is what is in between us and what we desire. We desire something, but we simply are failing to see it. He goes on to say, and it's always our biggest opportunity because if we see it and grasp it, that reality, we can find a real way that will work, one rooted in things that are really are to get what we desire. Now think about this as we, we kind of bring all this down. You see, the key concept here is this. Hope is the currency of faith, but it can be spent on the wrong things and in the wrong way. Hope is the currency of faith, but can be spent on the wrong things and in the wrong way. You see, we hope things will change. It doesn't get changed, but we keep hoping that it'll change. And so we keep spending. We keep spending our faith. And without failing to realize that it's not going to change unless we really begin to make and do some work and really begin to find a way that will work and begin to get 
rooted in things that really are, all right, to get what we desire, to do all those things necessary. If we don't do the hard work, then we are never going to achieve that which we desire. You know, I've been working over the last, I would say, probably 10 months. I've been really working hard to lose some weight. And what I've discovered about the weight loss process, now I've lost 30 pounds, believe it or not, and um, my trainer is telling me ever since I started working out with him that I've lost a lot of fat, you know, and I've gained some muscle. I, I don't know how they do all that, right? So I'm just taking from his word and like, okay, brother, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. But what I noticed is this, is I've noticed that how difficult it is to make the small changes that leads to the big results. Because everything that we do is in the small changes. Everything we do is compressed within a 24-hour schedule. And within that 24-hour schedule, really, it's only about eight hours, eight critical hours. And if we looked at the eight hours of our day when we're actually working, it's probably only two or three hours out of that eight-hour day when we are making something that's critical that moves forward. Like I've been spending, I've spent probably two hours on this podcast today. I'm now at minute 52 recording this. And um, the rest of my days has been going around answering phone calls, dealing with this, dealing with that. I've got to drive after this podcast is done. I've got to move, go over and handle something. Small amounts of time. But this podcast is the critical piece. So it's, a, you know, eight hours of my day and I only produce something that's maybe critical as 50 minutes. And that's the difference here. But it's those small things that makes a huge difference in the long run. It's those small decisions that we make that have the most profound impact in our lives. So how do we diagnose hope, all right? Well, there's two key ideas. And this is something that I think is one of the most important, if not the most important takeaways of today's show. Here it is. In the absence of real objective reasons to think that more time is going to help, it is probably time for some type of necessary ending. It is hopeless to continue to do what you're doing, expecting different results. I'm going to say that one more time. In the absence of of real objective reasons to think that more time is going to help, it is probably time for some type of necessary ending. That is to say this, if you're stuck in a rut, you're wanting to make a change, you're seeing things that are not working, and you don't have any real objective reason to think that anything else is going to help, you, you got to make some kind of change. And I think that's the hard part, and that's why it is so difficult, particularly in churches that I have found, to make changes because it's the objective reasons, the real objective reasons, nailing those things down and understanding what they are. When those things um, are not around, you have to start thinking about necessary endings. And it's true in relationships too. You know, you I, I meet uh, people that are in dysfunctional relationships and the husband's drinking too much or the wife's gambling too much and, you know, they want to change. And I said, is there anything, do you have any objective reason that this person is going to be any different tomorrow? Do you have any kind of, do you have any inclination? And they're like, no. And I said, okay, well, then there's some change that has to happen. And it's, it's facing brutal reality. And we don't like to face brutal reality because it's hard. 
It's uncomfortable. It requires energy and exertion. And so what do we do by default? Because it, those things require energy and exertion. We just default back to the program that we're stuck in. Number two, here's the second thing to think through. What reason, other than the fact that I want this to work, that is wishing, do I have for believing that tomorrow is going to be different from today? That's a really important question, isn't it? It's just what I talked about uh, just a second ago. What reason, other than the fact that I want this to work, I just really want this to work, I have no objective you know, information about it, I am purely being motivated by faith. I own that it's by faith. But I don't have any other reason other than the fact that I want this to work. Do I have for believing that tomorrow is going to be different from today? You know, do I have any of those reasons? Then it's time for a necessary ending. You see, I think that the question is, how do we, you know, how do we quit? You know, you know, how to quit things that aren't working. Doesn't it really boil down to those two ideas? Doesn't it boil down to the idea that we just don't want to. We're not ready to let go of it. There's still some emotional attachment to it. There's still emotional reasons why. And it may be tied to, you know, how you are tied to it, how your own self is tied to it. You may be in a business relationship that's not working, you know, and it's difficult. It's difficult difficult to parse through that. So I think that one of the things that I'd like to leave with you today is when we're answering this question, you know, how to quit things that aren't working, I think that the answer is this. Don't be afraid to start. Don't be afraid to start. Sometimes we get all of the reasons right. Sometimes we get all the objective evidence ready. We know there needs to be a change. We know that it's going to be hard. We even know that it's going to be uncomfortable. And we know that it needs to be done. And yet we simply don't do it. I think that when you think about that, it's the fear of starting, that the only way to counter that fear is to come back where I started at this segment, or excuse me, in street theology, which is understanding the loyalty of God, knowing that God is going to be there with you, knowing that God is going to have you at his back, knowing that God is a loyal and faithful God. When you have that in your mind, you can move mountains. And that brings us to the end of this show. Hard to believe that 58 minutes are gone. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his countenance be upon you and go in peace. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to Grace on Fire, a Verve Creative production. For show notes, updates, and more, visit jonathangsmith.com slash graceonfire.